Well, if you would take out your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 4. We're going to summarize chapter 3 and then look at the end of chapter 4, verses 22 uh, through 37. However, uh, to begin our time, I'm going to read verse 12. So if you're confused, just stand in reverence to the reading of God's perfect word uh, and just pray that I'm not confused about what we're about to do. So Acts chapter 4, verse 12. And um, I'm so thankful for the words that Joe Martin shared with us. We try really hard to explain what we're doing as a church at all times, uh, because as a church, we are a witness to the kingdom. And so when we pray, when we sing, and when we give, we are witnessing the kingdom of Christ. We are declaring Jesus is Lord. And right now, as we stand in reverence to the reading of God's word, we are a witness to the Lordship of Christ. We are saying to the forces of darkness and anyone who is watching, Jesus is Lord and He has spoken authoritatively through His Word and we stand to listen. We stand to be changed. We stand in reverence. If a king walked in the room right now, we would all rise. And a king has been here all along and His name is Jesus. And we read His Word from Acts chapter 4. Verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Oh Lord, we pray today that you would take your word and you would transform us by your word. You would uh, cause us to, to think hard and clear about our lives before your authority that you would cause us to examine our desires, that, that you would cause us to question our motives and our goals, and, and, and by the power of your Spirit, we would bring it and we would lay it all on the table. And we would leave here today with it all, declaring Jesus is King, witnessing the truth that He is back from the dead, that He is ruling and He is reigning that He is seated at your right hand. And nothing that we are, nothing that we have, nothing that we do can escape His authority. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. What local church are you a member of? Well, I'm not a member of a local church right now. I'm actually taking a break from church. You see, I believe that the church is too institutional. It's too institutionalized. There, there's just so much structure that goes along with church. And, and Christianity is supposed to be uh, more organic. It's supposed to be just lived out on a daily basis. It, 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 it's not supposed to have so many rules and so much structure. I'm taking a break from the church. But you're planning to be a missionary what exactly are you going to do on the mission field? Well, I'm going to make disciples. Well, okay, what are these disciples going to do? Well, they're going to live out the gospel 
And they're going to live out their lives for Jesus in their cultural context. So you're going to these people to make this... How are you going to get there, by the way? Well, I haven't thought about that yet. So what you're going to do when you get there is you're going to make disciples who live out the gospel in their cultural context. Now let me ask you a question. How are you going to teach them to live out the gospel in their cultural context? Well, we're going to meet and talk. You're going to schedule times. You're going to schedule places. You're going to add a little structure to that. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Eventually, I'm going to share the gospel with so many people that we're going to have to meet in small groups. Oh, small groups. So that's the structure you're going with. Are you going to assign leaders to these small groups? Or are you going to lead these small groups? Well, well, yeah, I've got to assign leaders and I've got to teach. So you're going to be like a pastor or a planter. No, 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 no. That's not, that's, that, no, that's not what I'm saying. So, so how are you going to teach these people to live out the gospel in their cultural context, in these small groups? Well, what are you saying? What are you, why are you asking me all of these questions? Well, I'm just trying to help you understand that you're going to have to institute some structure to this mission that you say is organic at some point in time. My friend that I was having lunch with was at that time extremely immature in his understanding of missions. And like so many that I've talked to who are called to the mission field and they're going to change the world for Jesus... At some point, they begin to look at the churches they've been involved with. They begin to look at the context of Christianity that they know. And they begin to think they can do it better. And I've had this similar conversation, not just with seminary students, whose churches are paying for them to go to seminary, who think they can do it better than the church. I've had this very similar conversation with people who start non-for-profits, people who are going to be involved in orphan care and adoption, and they have this mission that in their mind, they separate from the local church, and they begin to think it doesn't have anything to do with the local church. And I used to, early on in ministry, get really upset with these men. I used to get really upset with these guys. Because they had grown up in local churches. They had been around local churches all their life. And now they're going to do something that is so much better than the local church. But over time, I've had so many of those conversations, it doesn't even bother me anymore. Because so many times, these missions and these great ideas that these guys have, they never last when they're disconnected from the local church when it's disconnected and it's a mission other than the church. What really bothers me now, and what really gets me fired up now, is when Christians in the local church disconnect their life on a daily basis from the local church. Christians who work at Steak and Shake, who don't understand that what they do at Steak and Shake is connected to the witness of the local church. Stay-at-home moms who are shopping at Walmart and they don't understand how the mission to get groceries fits in the mission of Jesus. 
That, that is what really gets me fired up to, to, to help us see as a church that, that we are an extension of Christ's witness at all times, in all places, no matter who we are or what vocation we're in or what we see as our mission. And this is what we see in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, Jesus is declaring that the church is His sign in the world. That the church is where He is declaring His authority. The church is the witness. It is the signal that He is Lord. And by design, if you are a Christian, you are an extension of that sign. You are an extension of that witness at all times, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, you extend the church's witness. In Acts chapter 2, we, we see how this witness begins to flow in and out of the local church. We were in Acts chapter 2 last week and we saw these amazing signs to begin the chapter. We saw the church gathered in an upper room. And then all of a sudden there are tongues of fire over their head. And they begin to preach and teach with boldness so that people from different cultures and different languages understand what they are saying. Peter stands up and preaches with boldness, filled with the Holy Spirit. And the chapter ends by saying 3,000 were added to their number. Amazing mission endeavor amazing proclamation of the gospel. But where does it end up in chapter 2? How does chapter 2 end? It ends with the church eating together, having fellowship meals, doing BFG, having worship and outreach. Very ordinary, very common things. We go from boom, explosion, Pentecost, to potlucks. We go, boom, signs and wonders and miracles. Y'all, we need to take up an offering. It always comes back to the local church. It always comes to the church. All of these signs and wonders and witnesses of the gospel throughout the book of Acts are filtered and cycled in and out of the local church. And we see that today in chapters 3 and 4. Peter and John, the first of chapter 3, they leave the church and they're going to the temple to pray. And they run upon a man who hasn't walked his whole life. As a matter of fact, he's sat at the temple his whole life and he has begged for money because he can't do anything else. Peter and John have probably seen him before. And they walk up on the temple and they see this man begging and they say, we don't have money for you. Silver and gold isn't something we possess, but let me tell you what we possess. And they speak in the name of Jesus, and this man stands up and he walks around. And people had seen him their whole life. They had known him their whole life. The text says he was 40 years old. He had friends say, man, what in the world are you doing walking now? And he turns to them and he says, you know, the Jesus freaks did it. The folks who were in the upper room, and, and, and I don't know if it's true, but what they are telling me and what they are telling everybody else is that Jesus did it. 
That Jesus is using them to do these things in the world. And they are saying Jesus is back from the dead. And Peter steps in at that point and says, Oh, by the way, while we're at it, let me tell you once again who this Jesus is. This scared fisherman denying Jesus at the end of the Gospels is all of a sudden preached this magnificent sermon at Pentecost. And once again, as if he hasn't got enough of the opposition, he stands up at the temple and says, Yeah, I did it in the name of Jesus. The hillbilly from Galilee that you killed and he's back from the dead. All of the promises that God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he has now given to Jesus. And the only way you can have those promises is to believe in him. The only way you can be a part of his kingdom is to believe in the Nazarene who is back from the dead who is coming again. And he calls them to repent. And they don't repent. They arrest him. They throw him in jail. And they bring Peter and John before 71 religious leaders. Many of them had been a part of killing Jesus. And so all of a sudden, they're a little irritated. This man we killed, you're saying he's back from the dead and he's healing people in our city. Hey, let's talk about it. Let's sit down and let's talk about it. All we want you to do is stop saying Jesus did it. Okay? We're okay with the good deeds. We're okay with, 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 with you healing people. You, that's good. That's a good thing. We can't be against healing people. Do you know the PR nightmare we would have? A heal, you shouldn't heal people. Just stop saying Jesus did it. Stop it. And Peter says, oh, I guess you didn't hear me. Jesus did it. Jesus did it. Yes, the Jesus you killed, he did it. We didn't do it. Jesus did it. The Jesus that you treated like a broken brick and you cast off the side of the road, that Jesus that God has made a cornerstone, a foundation block for his kingdom who is coming back to judge you if you don't repent, that Jesus did it. And just like this crippled man who couldn't walk, you are crippled. You're crippled in all of your robes, in all of your counsel, in all of your religion. You are crippled and you need Jesus. You are sin crippled. And there is no other name under heaven by which you must be saved to turn from the sickness, to turn from the effects of death in your own soul that has alienated you from God and you are blinded because of your religion, you are sick, turn to Jesus. There, I said it again. Jesus, sue me. And the religious leaders say, well, I guess you see it our way. Just go along. Just get out of our hair. Stop saying Jesus. And Peter and John go back to the church at the end of chapter 4. And so once again in the book of Acts, we see these moves. Outstanding signs and wonders accompanied by the proclamation of the gospel. And then we're back at the church at the end of chapter 4. Peter and John go back to the church and they're reporting on their outreach endeavors in the middle of the city. And they're telling folks, 
you won't believe we got another opportunity to preach the gospel. Pentecost, at the temple, and now we've stood before the religious leaders, and we just keep preaching the gospel. And at this point, the text says, 5,000 people had been added to the church in Jerusalem. You have a mega church forming in Jerusalem. And John and Peter are reporting back to the church all that has happened to them, that they have been arrested. I mean, think about this. What a church growth strategy. Preach Jesus, make a lot of people mad, and thousands of people will come to church. Get arrested if you want your church to grow. I mean, can you imagine putting that book in Lifeway? How to grow your church. Get arrested. Make people who don't like you even more mad by proclaiming the name of Jesus. And that's exactly what's going on in the context of the church. Notice verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priest and elders had said. They report back to the church all that's going on. And then verse 24. When they had heard it, this seems to be in the context of the church, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them? What do they do in light of opposition? What do they do in light of persecution? What do they do in light of what God is doing despite the difficulty? They worship. As a church, they lift their voices, the text says, together. The, the, the word, the imagery here is to be of one accord. It's the picture of harmony in the church. The church comes together and they have different voices. And yet they make one glorious sound together as they sing. The church comes together and there are different preferences, different backgrounds, different histories, different gifts. But they come together and they are literally tied together in mission and worship. This togetherness, this one accord, 12 times in the New Testament, it's used 10 times in Acts. What Luke is trying to say is these people were bound together in worship and in mission and in the face of opposition. And notice what they say, sovereign Lord, literally ruling master. And then they sing that he is the one who made, who created out of nothing, heaven and earth and everything that in them, in them. You are the sovereign king of the universe. You are the ruler and king over all creation. And here we see something about spirit-filled worship. Spirit-filled worship is worship that bows before God. It doesn't make a spectacle. It doesn't lift ourselves up. It bows before God as Lord and Creator. And the church here is involved in Spirit-filled worship. They are a witness of the Spirit here as they are testifying God is King of creation. Where did all of the problems begin? In the garden where King Adam rebelled against his Creator. He shunned his Creator's authority. And here what the Spirit is saying is I am creating a new people, a new garden, the church, and they submit to their Creator through a new Adam who is their King. Here we see Spirit-filled worship that bows before God as King. But notice the text continues, verse 25. Who through the mouth of our father David, our hero King, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? 
The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed, against God as King and the one He appointed to rule for Him. Why are the nations raging against Him? For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand had predestined them to do. The church sings a psalm. And they turn to one another and say, you remember in Psalm 2 when David wrote this, what was going on? When David first sung Psalm 2, the nations were raging against him. And what did David do? He looked to God as king. And he said, why do the nations do? Notice the text says, they plot a vain thing. Empty, futile. David looks out at his enemies and he says, this is futile. This is empty. And now the church is doing the same thing with the words of David. They look out at the city and they say, in raging against us, these folks are raging against Jesus, but let's apply our lives to the Word of God and remember that's vanity. They couldn't stop Jesus with a Roman instrument of torture. They couldn't stop Jesus with a tomb. And they can't stop the church. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And they say, the way that the nations have always raged against God, rebelled against God and against His King, we see that in the city right now. We see Herod, a Gentile king. We see Pilate, a Roman emperor. We see the Gentiles, the nations. We see even Israel who were raging against Jesus just like the nations raged against David. And just like David said, that's vanity. The church stands up in worship here and says that's vanity. It doesn't make any sense. It's foolish. It's futile. The gates of hell will not prevail against us and neither will the leaders in Jerusalem. We see, again, preaching in Acts, something we want to make note of as we move forward, where Jesus is pointed to as the fulfillment of all of God's promises. And over and over, Jesus is pointed to as a greater king than even David. And the point of Acts is don't look to David. Don't look to temporal kingdoms. Don't look to your ancestry apart from Jesus. Jesus is a greater king than even David. And David's king kingdom was unstoppable only because Jesus is back from the dead. If Jesus is still in the ground, all that David sung and all that David hoped in would be futile. David was in Jesus' story. We are in Jesus' story, not vice versa. Jesus isn't in your story. You're in His. And that is something you have to figure out as a Christian to know what it means to walk with Jesus. We don't apply Jesus' story to our life. I know we use that terminology. Let, I, I probably said it this morning. I was talking about BFGs. Apply the Word of God to your life. Apply the story to your life. A lot of times when we think that way, we think, how can I take the Bible and make my life better? When actually what we should be doing with the story of the Bible is applying our life to it, which is exactly what the church is doing here. They see themselves in God's amazing, glorious story. And they are seeing themselves in the middle of that story. 
So we take the story of God and we apply our lives to it. We see where we fit in that story. And just like it's always been vain to oppose Jesus, we take the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and we open it up and we, every time we read it, we say, yeah, it's vain to oppose Jesus. This is His kingdom from Genesis to Revelation. The story ends with Jesus seated on the throne of the cosmos, ruling and reigning. God's goal in telling us this story is to say, He is my King. No one can defeat Him. The cross couldn't defeat Him. Death couldn't defeat Him. He will rule and He will reign forever. That's the story that you're in. And to the extent your life doesn't line up with that story, just like the nations in Jerusalem, it's empty. It's futile. You're working against the purposes of God. No, we take the Bible. This is how we study the Bible, read the Bible, think about the Bible. We, we, we lay the story before us and we say, God, help me align my life to this story. Uh, in the cross, you've given me forgiveness of sins. How do I witness and declare forgiveness of sin to all around me? How do I live as someone who's been forgiven? Post-resurrection, you promised me that I will be raised from the dead. How will my life before others witness one who one day will be a former corpse? How do I do that? And you think about all of life in that way. You try to fit it in Jesus' story and think about what it looks like in the grand scheme of things. To the extent my story is about me, it's just empty. It's a dead end. But the extent that it's about Jesus, it's full of glory. If your money exists to tell a story of your comfort and your security... That's empty because it will end one day. But if your money exists to tell the story of Jesus and you leverage it for his glory to get the story out, you're making an eternal investment that never goes away. His story is the only one that will last forever. You fold the story of your resources into his story. If your time if your time, you, you think about your calendar, you think about, you, you think about your reminders, you think about what you got to do this week, and, and your time and your schedule is only telling a story about you, then you're wasting your time. But if you plot out your schedule and you say, how does this fit into the, 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 the great story of Jesus? How will, how will my time, even if it means me being inconvenienced so that others might see Jesus so might know Jesus and hear about Jesus, then your time has meaning and purpose. And it's fulfilling because you're in a story that doesn't end. If your success is only about the story of your name, guess what? It will never end. You will be noticed and you will be recognized from th for things. And yet, those things pass away. Those things fade. Yeah, you won state in high school. Who cares now? Can't hardly walk, son. <laughs> that kind of glory fades away if it's just about you. That kind of glory goes away. But if you say all that I accomplish, even when I win state in high school, and that, that success and that fulfillment may kind of lift my name up, and I take the name that others see and they appreciate and they recognize, and I say, no, it's not about me, it's about Jesus. Guess what? Even your success 
Even the ambitions and hopes and dreams that you have that, that may give you a name, a little, a little speck of a name when it's folded into the greater story of Jesus' name, it knows no end. And so you take all of life and you, you work to apply it to Jesus' story. Even an episode in your story like the diagnosis of cancer. It, if it's not folded into Jesus' story, it's meaningless suffering. <coughs> and when the diagnosis comes, you should just try to live it up. But if it's folded into Jesus' story, guess what? It, it's, a, it's a chapter in his story that makes much of him. And you look around at those who see you suffer and dying and you, you, you say, I'm trusting in a resurrected king who promises me that my casket will be busted open one day. And you leverage even cancer to witness the glory of Jesus Christ. When you fold it into his story, it has meaning. And here is exactly what the church is doing. And this is why we see them in the next section praying for boldness. Notice, and now, the, now Lord, look upon their threats, the threats of the leaders. And, and this word grant actually means to grace or give us the honor as your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Do you get that? Jesus, we're facing opposition. Wipe them out. Tongues of fire, healing crippled people, you can cause them all to be struck dead and leave us alone. No. What they pray for is boldness because that's what they need to maximize the gospel. Verse 30, while, you're, while you stretch out your hand and you heal and signs of wonders are performed in the name of your holy servant Jesus, they are praying here in the face of opposition and in light of signs and wonders that they would speak the gospel. And, and this is what's going on in Acts. Throughout Acts, we will see as the gospel moves from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. That scared me a little bit. I stepped off the thing. <laughs> I thought I was gone. I thought I'd stepped over there. We needed a sign, a wonder. Uh, Every time the gospel moves to a new area, you see these signs and you see these wonders. And what Jesus is saying is this is a window into my kingdom. I'm making a new kingdom. That's why the, the wonder of tongues and acts, it's not an ecstatic language, some prayer language. It is people of different cultures and languages hearing and understanding the gospel. Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. And what Jesus is saying is, here's a window into my kingdom. People from all places, all nations, all cultures, all languages. When someone is healed in Acts, what Jesus is saying is, this is a window into my kingdom. I will reverse the effects of sin and death in the world. And there is a kingdom coming where those who have never walked will stand up and walk. That is my kingdom. Here's a window. And what the church says is help us keep pointing to Jesus. 
as we see all of these signs and wonders, as you stretch out your mighty hand, and that language is just like the language of the Exodus when God stretched out His mighty hand and Moses stretched out His hands, and there was this amazing Exodus, and the people of God were rescued. Help us, God, continue to point to the One who is coming to rescue us. Help us to continue to say, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King, even when we are opposed. And notice what the text says. And when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. It was an earthquake. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And notice what they continued to do. Notice what the feeling of the... That's Tennessee coming out. (laughs) Feeling. Let's do it this way. Being full of the Holy Spirit. We got some Tennessee folks up here and there. Amen. <laughs> what it means to be full of the Holy Spirit is to speak with boldness. That is the sign in Acts. The proclamation of the gospel with boldness. Witness in Acts begins and ends with boldness of the Holy Spirit to speak the name of Jesus. And so as we move through Acts, and they are declaring the name of Jesus, they're doing more than, than putting Dale Earnhardt in memory of Dale Earnhardt on the back of their pickup truck. In the name of Dale Earnhardt, I run through this red light. They're doing more than that. What they are doing here, as they do these things, it's not in the memory of Jesus. They're saying this is in the power of Jesus. And it's a name that these men hate. It would be like them standing before us and saying, We just healed a man in the name of Saddam Hussein. That is what they are doing before these religious leaders. We just healed a man in the name of Hitler. They hate Jesus. They had him killed. And yet the sign is that they would stand up and say, yeah, but he's back from the dead and he's going to judge you. That is the sign of the Spirit in Acts is boldness from even these uneducated men who these leaders say, we can't even argue with them. Because they don't even know the Bible. They don't even know theology. We can't argue with them that the resurrection's not true because they don't even know what they're talking about. They're just proclaiming by the power of the Spirit, Jesus is King. You see, so often when we think about a successful church, we think about a church with no opposition. When we pray about being a successful church or that the church in our country would be successful, so often what we pray is that we would have no opposition. That's not the prayers of the church in Acts. It's despite the opposition, we would have boldness. We think about being full of the Spirit, and we think about ecstatic, exciting, goosebump worship. No, being full of the Spirit here is that you would speak no matter what. And so as we pray for a a church that would move, a church that would, would be, quote, successful, what we should be praying for is boldness, courage. That's what we pray for. That we would be willing to do hard things in hard places for Jesus. That's what our prayers should be full of. And some of our prayers here today may be answered by you putting money in an offering plate to send those grandkids to places you may never see them again. That's boldness of the Spirit. That's a witness of the gospel. 
That's what the church is praying here for. We're not going to huddle together and be scared. No, we're going to send folks right back out into the fray. Give us boldness. And notice, Jesus answers the prayer with boldness. As you pray for what it means to walk with the Spirit, be full of the Spirit in your life, what you should be praying for is boldness. The same sort of boldness last night that you had when the UK player is clotheslined going up with two seconds left on the clock. And they didn't call foul. And y'all went nuts. You didn't even think about what you were putting on Facebook. Foul. Yeah, right. Idiots. You just blurted it out. That's the same sort of boldness we should have to say Jesus is king. But not so unsanctified, maybe. (laughs) The same sort of boldness you have to defend UK versus U of L. The, The same sort of boldness that you have to argue politics on Facebook. The same sort of boldness you have to scream at the up when your grandkid is is called out on the third strike. The the same sort of boldness. That that is what you need to proclaim Jesus is king. That that right there is being full of the Spirit. The, 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 The sort of filling of the Spirit and speaking that moves past awkwardness and uncomfortableness in those moments where you go... Yeah, we've gotten to this point. They're hearing me out. But if I start talking about Jesus, it's going to be weird. It's going to be awkward. I may lose a friend here. How is this going to turn out? And and you want to close your mouth. What being full of the Spirit in that moment is speaking anyway. Pushing through. That's what being full of the Spirit does in the book of Acts. Point to Jesus. Jesus is King. Jesus is Lord. And notice verse 32 What happens next? The witness in giving. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. They're all praying for boldness. They're all declaring Jesus is king, that God is the creator. They are worshiping. They are singing together as one. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to them was his own. But they had everything in common. They are aligned with this mission, with this story, and they say all that we are and all that we have is on the table to make sure that this witness, Jesus is King, moves forward. They're aligned. They're bound together with one mission. Verse 33, And with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Here, the preaching of the gospel continues. Boldness, the prayer for boldness continues. And they are testifying, witnessing. It is true. Jesus is Lord. He is back from the dead. And great grace was on them. People were being added to their number. They were united on this mission together. There was this great community full of grace, full of the gospel. In verse 34, And there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it all at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Again, Signs, wonders, miracles, preaching of the gospel, fellowship. Whatever you need, we got it. 
They are bound together here in fellowship. They are laying things at the apostles' feet so that the mission of the church might move forward. And as the mission of the church moves forward, many of them are losing their homes. They're being persecuted. They're going without. And so what the church says, it says, all on the table. Whatever we need as a family to declare Jesus is Lord here, it's all on the table. And the text says, so no one was without need. Now, you've got to admit, that's weird. Like, some of you don't think tongues of fire are weird. But then we get to this section, and you go, oh my word, that's so weird. People are selling their homes for the church. No, tongues of fire is more weird. (laughs) But here what we are seeing, this sounds like some cultish, socialistic commune. And we started doing that today. You wouldn't be back next week. If I said, today, we got a need to take the gospel to an unreached country. Can't even tell you where it is. So dangerous. Bring your truck keys to the altar. We're going to sell everybody's car. You just say, no. <laughs> not happening. And that's what's going on here. This is more strange to us than all the other things that are going on in Acts. And it's because we don't understand the concept of fellowship. We think about fellowship and we simply think in our mind a get-together. An ice cream social. As we think about fellowship. When youth ministry does things and they don't really know why they're doing them. They're going here, they're going there. They just have to say it's a fellowship because it sounds spiritual. No, we're going bowling. Why? It's a fellowship. (laughs) That's the way we think about fellowship. But the picture here is a sharing together The language of holding all things in common is what fellowship is. It means to share together, to share the gospel together. And they are sharing the mission together to take the witness of Jesus as king to the ends of the earth. And and this this, this sort of fellowship, this sort of togetherness, as a Christian, we think about this sort of community, and then we go out into the world... And we don't see it. We don't feel it. What we see on a daily basis is the gossip in the teacher's lounge. Everybody wants to get their opinion out. Everybody wants to be liked. And we go out into the world, and what we see is people backstabbing each other so they can get the promotion. What we see is people wanting a name for themselves, and they're pushing each other down and they're not bound together in a common mission. This is what the church is to look like. And it is to be counter anything else you experience in the world. And that's why when you read it, it is to feel a little bit odd. Strange. Because it is the otherworldly presence of the Spirit. The Spirit does this. This kind of fellowship isn't forced. It's not forced. We, We so often think about the church and we want a place where fellowship exists. Or we walk around in the church saying, fellowship me, fellowship me, community me, meet my needs. That's the way we think about it. You don't force that on the church. What you do in the context of the church is you focus on mission and fellowship just happens. You're willing to do whatever in the context of fellowship 
to get the mission fulfilled. We see that with sports teams. We see that in the army. We see that with folks together who they have this common cause that they're passionate about and they're willing to do whatever it takes to get that done and they are bound together as brothers. And this is what happens naturally by the power of the Spirit in the context of the church when we are committed to the same mission. So that's why we talk about mission. We don't hardly ever, that I know, get up here and scream, Y'all fellowship! Fellowship! Like each other! Please! No, what we say is this is all about Jesus. Getting the gospel to Richmond and to the ends of the earth. And if we are all committed to that, we're going we're gonna to fellowship. We may not like each other, but we're going to fellowship and we're going to give it all for that mission. And we're going to be bound together to that mission. And this is what we see people doing in the context of the church. Verse 36. Joseph, who was called the apostle, called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought it and laid it to the apostles' feet. Again, we just keep getting more and more basic with what's going on in the church to the point where all the way down to just a guy, just a guy named Barnabas, and the church has a need. Oh, I got some property. I got some property I'm not using. You want to give it to my grandkids? I'm going to sell it so we can fulfill the mission. Just a guy named Barnabas, who later in Acts 15 is not just a guy anymore. He's someone that the church says, we want you to go to the ends of the earth and tell the Gentiles about the gospel. But Acts 15 with Barnabas, when we get there, doesn't happen without episodes like this where he is saying to the church, whatever you need. And the point here is, is that the church is not just an abstract blob of people. It's not just a generic witness doing whatever. It's real people doing real things, giving themselves over in tangible ways, saying, I'm all in for the mission of the church. See, what we think is to be somebody for Jesus, we've got to run out with a with a Holy Ghost lightsaber and, and just be amazing for Jesus. No, Barnabas was just a guy. But he did something amazing for the kingdom. And guess what? Barnabas' story is in Jesus' story. The very story you hold in your hand right now. How will your retirement fit into Jesus' story? How will your schoolwork fit into Jesus' story? How will your time setting on bleachers fit into Jesus' story? Just a guy, just a, a woman who loves Jesus, witnessing the gospel, seeing your life, not telling your own story, but the story of Jesus. If you want to be somebody for Jesus, how about be all in for what Jesus has gone all in for? His church to the ends of the earth.